0: The American Academy of Sports Physical Therapy and JOSPT are joining forces to bring you the virtual Sports PT Conference on Friday the 3rd and Saturday the 4th of November. This is the premier online event for sports physical therapists in 2023. The conference blends the best in clinical practice with the latest in research so that you are in the best position to help the patients and athletes you work with. From what to do to reduce injury risk to top strategies for boosting the athlete's performance, the 2023 online conference has you covered. Check out the link in the show notes to see the full conference program and to secure your ticket. Hello, and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the editor in chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. G'day, everyone. The JOSPT Insights team are really hard at work recording some terrific interviews to round out your 2023 listening. So while we're putting the finishing touches on our last block of new episodes for this year, we're taking the opportunity to revisit some of the outstanding episodes that you might have missed in the past year. These are the hidden gems of musculoskeletal rehabilitation, and we really didn't want you to miss these ones. Okay, here's today's episode. Does the thought of dermatomes and myotomes, nerve trunks and nerve roots, fill you with confidence or fill you with fear? Today, Dr. Anina Schmidt from the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences at Oxford University brings her extensive experience in the Neurosciences Lab and the Physiotherapy Clinic to help you put together a checklist of what you need to know and what you need to do to nail your neurological assessment next time you're in the clinic. Anina covers the equipment and the tests you need, and more importantly, how the results of a neurological assessment can inform your clinical decisions. Professor Anina Schmidt, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today to talk about what it takes to do a good neurological assessment. Anina, let's start with why one might think about doing neurological testing in the clinic. What are the main reasons that you might consider to do a neurological examination?
1: There's certainly a few different reasons that would trigger or want you to do a neurological examination. The first thing, of course, is if you want to identify the presence of a neuropathy. So say a patient gives you any indication there might be a neuropathy, such as radiating pain down a limb or any kind of descriptors of neuropathy, like, you know, pins and needles, tingling, numbness, uh, weakness, dysesthesia, such as a woollen feeling down the leg or something like that. So identifying the presence of neuropathy is probably the most common reason why people should consider doing a neurological examination. But then also, we often do a neurological examination to identify whether someone has neuropathic pain. So if someone has pain, like burning pain, electric shock-like pain, et cetera, that sounds very much like neuropathic pain. But if we go by the published grading system of what does it take to diagnose neuropathic pain, part of that includes sensory signs. And these sensory signs are loss of function signs. So we would look for numbness in an area. So patients can't feel, for example, light touch sensation so well or pinprick sensation so well. And if we have that, then our the probability for somebody to have neuropathic pain increases. Then of course, we also do quite often a neurological examination to exclude a serious pathology, specifically of the central nervous system. So think about things like a patient with cervical myelopathy, um, would have a very different finding on, on a neurological screening examination compared to somebody with a nerve root problem. So in fact, if somebody has a myelopathy, we would expect upper motor neuron signs such as positive Hoffman's test or Babinski test or kind of a tactic gait, et cetera. And then maybe the fourth reason why we do a neurological examination quite often is to monitor change over time. So if we have somebody who has a problem on the neurological examination, we quite often reassess that again, you know, over the course of our treatment or over time to make sure we kind of know how that develops. Is that getting better? Is there signs of nerve regeneration? Or is that actually getting worse? Which then might, in some instances, mean we need to refer somebody on
0: So let's get into the neurological assessment itself. What do you say that clinicians need to do a good quality neurological examination? What does the clinician need to know? What do we need to pay attention to? What kind of tests do we need to feel comfortable using? What kind of equipment do we need? Actually, I would say we don't really need much equipment at all. The essentials are, of course, a
1: reflex hammer. I would argue we need some neurotips as well, um, specifically to test small fiber population. And maybe I can come back to that a bit later. Cotton wool or tissue paper for a light touch sensation. And then something that is more cold or warm, something like, you know, coins. If you want to get more fancy once it comes to quantification, then of course there's, you know, quite fancy equipment like a uh, great graduated tuning fork, demis weinstein filaments, dynamometers, et cetera. And they can be very useful specifically for specialized clinicians who see a lot of people who have a problem with their nerves. However, that might not be available to everyone who, who, see, who does not regularly see these patients. That's completely okay. But I think you need at least a reflex hammer, some tips, some cotton wool, and maybe some coins in your pocket, and that will do. In terms of what do we need to know about it, I, I would say the main thing we need to understand is neuroanatomy. I know that might be a bit boring for some people or a bit far away um, after graduate school. A bit stressful. (laughs) Exactly, a bit stressful. But in fact, it's quite crucial when we do a neurological examination that we know the neuroanatomy. So we need to have knowledge of sensory innervation territories, both of nerve root levels, but also peripheral nerve trunks. We need to know which muscles are innervated by which peripheral nerve, but also by which nerve root level. If we think about nerve, central nervous system, we need to have a basic understanding of the spinal pathways as well to be able to interpret findings that might point more towards central nervous system changes. Where neuroanatomy is very helpful is if, if we do our traditional neuroscreen, myotomal strength uh, of the upper extremity, and when we test uh, the thumb, the extensor pollicis longest, we find a weakness. So that is a C8 myotomal weakness. But the extensor longus is is not only a C8 innervated muscle, but also innervated by the radial nerve. So it could either be a radial nerve problem or it could be a C8 nerve root problem. And to then look a bit further, could, could that be more root or could that be more a problem of the radial nerve? What we can do is we can test another C8 innervated muscle, but not innervated by the radial nerve. An example is the flexor carpi ulnaris, which is ulnar nerve innervated, but C8 level. And we can also test a radial nerve innervated, but not C8 innervated muscle. An example would be radialis muscle, which is a C6, and radial nerve. So if we would find that all C8 muscles, innervated muscles are basically weak, that points us more towards a nerve root problem. However, if more the radial innervated muscles are weak, that points us more towards thinking that maybe it's a peripheral nerve trunk problem affecting the radial nerve rather than the root. And of course, you know, supporting that information, what can help us is also the sensory examination and seeing whether that is more a root, like a dermatomal distribution or more a peripheral nerve distribution.
0: So Anina, if I understand you correctly, it's not sufficient to simply have the myotome and dermatome charts stuck up on the wall in the clinic. It's a little bit more detective work than that. I mean, I think it's very good that people have these charts up on the
1: wall. Uh, And I would advise not just having the dermatomal, but also the myotomal charts up there. So it's it's a good start, I think. But indeed, if you find a weakness or if you find a sensory deficit, then you have to go and look a bit more closely. And then these charts come in very, very handy to kind of see uh, which other muscles do you need to test? Which other sensory territories could it be? And then kind of try and make sense of it. In the end, a neurological examination is exactly what you say. It's detective work and it's not just one single test Test tells us it's a nerve root problem, it's a
0: peripheral nerve trunk problem. It's basically the picture that has to fit. Now can we talk a little bit about how you quantify and record this information and even what do you compare it to? Is it enough to compare to the opposite side? Or is there a better way to think about quantifying the extent of the problem?
1: When we do a traditional screen, we would usually have screen, say the left arm compared to the right arm. That is an optimal scenario if a patient has uh, symptoms only on one side. But quite often, people tend to have bilateral problems. You know, if you just think about the most common peripheral entrapment neuropathy is, is carpal tunnel syndrome. And we do know that 70% of patients actually have bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome. So it doesn't help much if you just compare left to right, say for light touch sensation, because, you know, it might well be reduced on, on both sides. Similarly, if you have patients with diabetic neuropathy, this is bilateral. And again, we cannot just compare left to right. So in these instances where we already know that there are bilateral symptoms, we would usually choose a more proximal site. Um, for comparison, say for sensory testing, if you test the hand, um, you could then take a control side, say at the face or over the chest area or the foot, we quite often use the abdomen as, as, a, as, a, as a proximal side. Or you could also use the thigh if you're sure there's no problems up, up in the thigh. If we quantify things, which is usually when we do if we find something on the screening examination, we would quantify it so that we can monitor it over time. And in these instances, quite often, at least in clinical practice, it's not even necessary to quantify it compared to the other side because we basically just want to quantify over time. Um, so then it's perfectly okay. Say you have a light touch um, deficit on the screening examination. You would want to quantify that. You could do that with a tuning fork. Or you could do that with this small... Bonfrey or Sameswein-style filaments, which are weighted, little weighted hairs, and where you can exactly know how many grams can a patient still feel. And you would basically just measure that, and then three months later, so you would remeasure and see whether that changes.
0: And how much change is is meaningful, Anina? How do you quantify the the clinical meaningfulness of a change? Because that's often a challenge, right? Absolutely. So I think this is
1: much easier to answer for motor strength. Then it is for sensation. So if we think about motor strength, and we think, say, about a radicular problem with a radiculopathy, and we have a motor deficit, then what is significant usually, for from a clinical side, is indeed if you have a patient who has an MRC scale of less than three, because that usually means they should not be in our clinics anymore as physiotherapists. They should be seen by, say, a surgeon for for an opinion for surgical for surgical exploration. Very severe neurological deficit. So MRC less than three definitely is, is very clinically relevant. However, what is also clinically relevant is if there is a progressive neurological deficit. So say a patient has first time we see them an M4, but the next time we see them two weeks later, they only have an M3. So that is a progressive neurological deficit. And that quite often also means it's important to refer them because that is not going the, into the right direction.
0: You're talking about manual muscle testing there. So the manual muscle testing result goes from f- a grade four to a grade three? Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So that is the traditional
1: medical research council scale that people very often use to quantify muscular deficits from M0 to M5, M5 being completely normal strength against full resistance. So for the sensory changes, what is a clinically meaningful? change is quite difficult in a clinical setting. In a research setting, of course, you know, we have normative data available. We use very fancy equipment, uh, the so-called quantitative sensory testing, and we can exactly say how much is abnormal because we can go by standard deviation. If somebody is beyond two standard deviation of the control mean, then we know this is abnormal. But that is not so easy in a clinical setting. Now, personally, I would again say a sensory loss is becomes then clinically relevant if it fits the picture and quite often you know you do sensory testing in a patient and a patient says oh i'm not quite sure can you repeat that again with that light touch that usually tells you you know this is not a massive neurological deficit in terms of loss of function of course we would do it again we you know we listen to patients but that is not what a proper neurological deficit is patients with a proper neurological loss of function, they usually really have quite a significant numbness in that area. And I would say if that numbness then fits with, say, the strength findings, with the reflex finding, if it fits with the clinical picture overall,
0: then it, it is absolutely clinical meaningful. Anina, what's the difference between a neurological examination and neurodynamic testing? So that is a very important thing that you bring up here because that
1: is being confused very often in clinical practice. Quite simply put, the neurological examination we use to identify loss of function. So that is weakness, reduced reflexes, numbness. And the neurodynamic test is exactly the opposite. It is actually a test for gain of function. So that means too many action potentials somewhere along that nervous uh, neural axis. And that that basically means more pain when we put some tension or pressure on nerves. So that is an important distinction because neurophysiologically, what happens to the nerve is very different, whether it reacts with not enough action potentials or too many action potentials. And we can have patients who have neurological loss of function. So the neurological screening is abnormal, but they have completely normal neurodynamic tests. Think about carpal tunnel syndrome again. You can have carpal tunnel syndrome. You have loss of sensation, so proper loss of function. Electrodiagnostic testing is abnormal. So again, loss of function. But still, only 50% of these patients actually have an abnormal upper limb neurodynamic test. And the opposite as well. So you can have positive neurodynamic tests, but absolutely no loss of function. So the neurological examination is completely normal. So an example is non-specific neck arm pain, the neurological examination is completely normal. But yet about 61% we found in our studies have have positive upper limb neurodynamic tests. So it's a completely different concept. But it's important we test the both because these are different types of patients. And personally, I also believe they need different types of management. Just think about, you know, education will be completely different whether somebody has more loss of function problem or a more kind of neurodynamic problem. I also believe it might need different uh, interventions physiotherapeutically. So for example, all the literature that we have on neurodynamic mobilizations or neural mobilizations are basically done in patients who have positive neurodynamic tests. There's not actually studies that have used these These interventions in patients with a proper neurological deficit. And that is just important for us uh, to remember. That doesn't mean these
0: interventions might not help. It just simply means we have no evidence. These are great messages. And I'm really keen to start to pull these threads together and think about this in a really clinically oriented way. And you've done a beautiful job, this whole interview, of sharing the sort of clinical, the very clinically relevant picture. Let's pull it all together and talk a bit about how all of this information influences the decisions that you or I or folks listening are going to make in the clinic when we're working with patients. We do a neurological examination and we find some, some findings.
1: First of all, I do think, as I mentioned, it has an impact on education or explanation for patients to make sense of their condition. Think about somebody who has weakness and doesn't understand exactly what is happening here. We would, you know, kind of use a completely different kind of explanation than if we have somebody with a weakness that is a non-neurological weakness, but more a, a deconditioning weakness. So it has an impact in that sense. It also has an impact, of course, for me to know do I need to reassess that, so do I need to quantify it and then use it as an outcome measure to be sure patients go the right direction in terms of regeneration rather than continuing degeneration? It might give me indications on treatment. So if we think about, as I mentioned, somebody with neurodynamic problems, we have evidence that they might benefit from neurodynamic treatments. But if we have somebody with a true neurological loss, then really we don't have very much evidence on how we treat them. But I would argue we would much more go for interventions that might potentially be regenerative interventions. And we have some indication from preclinical literature that, for example, aerobic exercise is highly, highly regenerative for nerves. There is some indication now from patients with um, diabetic neuropathy and chemotherapy-induced neuropathy that that might be the, the case There's just nothing as yet on, say, entrapment neuropathies, such as carpal tunnel or radicular pain or radiculopathy, et cetera. But very importantly, I think, and I think that is really the most important thing, how a neurological examination influences my decision-making. Is the decision, is that patient something for me in my clinical practice or does he or she need to be referred? Say, for example, for surgical decision. I quite like that analogy of, of the piece, <laughs> um, so if you have a pronounced neuro as I said, for example, less than MRC level three for a radiculopathy, you would refer. If you have a progressive neurological deficit, and for that we obviously need to quantify that we can detect it. If you have somebody with a polyroot problem, so say L four L five and S one is affected, that needs checking, say with an MRI, and if you have a serious pathology. So you have signs for central nervous system involvement, like the Binsky, Clonus positive, Hoffman's positive, etc. You might have to inquire for something else than, say, a peripheral neuropathy. The, the last P that I usually say is the uncontrollable pain, but that doesn't come from the neurological examination. That just comes simply from patient report.
0: Anina, what are your three top tips that you'd like to share with clinicians listening to us today for how they can do a really good neurological assessment?
1: I would say the first point, and I think that's anyway the most important point as as clinicians is know your patient's story. The neurological examination needs to be adjusted, as we as we discussed before. And also interpret it in the context of a big clinical reasoning framework. It's not a standalone. It, it is a big, it's like one piece of a big puzzle. I would say the second point is be familiar with your neuroanatomy, which we touched on before. If you just do your normal screen and you just go by myotomes, you might well miss things or misinterpret things as well. The third point probably is know how to interpret your findings. So you need to understand the limitations as well of a neurological examination. So, for example, you know, if somebody has bilateral absent reflexes, but they are over 60 years of age and they have, even in the upper extremity, really low, low reflexes, then that might not be as clinically relevant as somebody who has a very good reflex on one side and a completely absent reflex on the other side. Or, you know, how do I interpret an M4 strength deficit, for example. Yeah, and how do I differentiate something like a a proper neurological weakness from a a pain inhibition, which quite often happens and quite often is a bit more multi, you know, kind of uh, multi-muscle and comes and goes. But a true neurological weakness is very, very different from a deconditioning weakness or from a pain inhibition weakness. So we need to know how do we interpret our findings so that we again can make sense of of that puzzle.
0: Anina, that was a fantastic walkthrough how to do a really good clinical neurological assessment. Thank you for taking the time to join me on JOSPT Insights today. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights.